Thank you. Evening, everyone. Tonight, we are looking and continuing our um, series in the book of Exodus, in the Bible, which we've been in for a number of months now, just working our way through the, the story. Uh, and uh, today, we're, we're just taking one step back from where um, we were last Sunday for Easter. If you came in the morning, Ruth spoke on chapter 19. We're just going to go back a chapter and a half to um, uh, chapter 17, just one story that we want to pick out there before we carry on. Um, so we're going to pick up in chapter 17, verse 8. Um, so if you've got a Bible with you, then get that out, have it open as we go along. Um, otherwise, the words will be on the screens. You can follow along up there. So let's read together Exodus chapter 17, um, verse 8, and we're going to go through to the end of the chapter, verse 16. It says this. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, and Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So that's the story that we're going to focus on uh, here this evening. And um, I want to comment on, on three particular parts of that story. And primarily, and we'll spend most of our time uh, on the battle itself, um, but then at the end, I want to comment on then the two bits that happen after the battle is over, and that is the memorial and the altar that we hear about um, in those last couple of verses. But first, let's spend a while looking at the battle and, and what's going on here. This is, is their first battle as a people, the people of, of Israel. Um, they have had enemies in the past. I mean, Egypt pursued them, but they never actually had a kind of confrontation of this sort because God delivered them before that was ever going to be necessary. So this is the first time they kind of come face to face with an enemy. And uh, they ca they're camped at this place called Rephidim, which, again, if you were here a few weeks ago when Rick spoke on the first part of chapter 17, um, this is where um, Moses strikes the rock to get water for the people, same location. And um, so they're camped there in this story, and while they're there, they're attacked by these people called the Amalekites. Uh, the Amalekites were a nomadic people at the time and were renowned for essentially attacking other people groups um, to plunder their wealth and resources. They're very kind of opportunistic people. And so I've no doubt that when they heard that Israel was kind of on the move and walking through the wilderness, that they had to leave really quickly and so they wouldn't have been well equipped this is a great time to strike, to go and attack them. And so they do. Moses hears of this. Uh, we don't know how, whether they had scouts or whether the, the Amalek came and warned them first. We're not sure. But he hears of it and he tells Joshua to choose men to go out and fight. That's what he says in verse 9. But that isn't 
him saying to Joshua, oh, by the way, can you just go and get our already existing army and tell them we're going to have a fight? It is much more, Joshua, please can you just go and muster up whoever you can get, anyone that's willing and able. They wouldn't have had a standing army at the time, so Joshua's job was to basically go and get anyone that was up for it and physically able to be part of it. And we, we know that he only had a day to do it because it says in the next uh, sentence that tomorrow Moses is going to go and stand on top of the hill while the battle takes place. So Joshua has 24 hours to pull together an army out of nothing. And suffice to say, this would have been a tough job because they'd have been weary and tired from all of their traveling. They wouldn't have been well equipped at all. Because if you were the Egyptians when you had the people of Israel in slavery, you would have been a fool to have given them an armory and lots of weaponry, oh, just in case. So they wouldn't have had that stuff to hand. Anything that they'd have used would have been things like kitchen knives. Maybe they'd have had some shorter swords that they might have fashioned during their time in the wilderness up to now, but that's at best. So Joshua does his best. He gets these people together. It barely resembles a fighting force of any kind. But with what they've got the next day, Joshua did as Moses told him. That's what we read in verse 10. And he fought with Amalek. While Moses goes up on top of the hill with two people. He goes up with Aaron, his brother, and another guy called Hur, who we actually don't hear loads about in the rest of the story. He crops up another couple of occasions in um, the Old Testament. But the scholars agree that he's probably just a prominent leader within the people. Uh, and he goes up with Aaron um, to be up on the hill with Moses. And then, we're not really told much about the fight at all. We're told that Joshua goes to fight with Amalek. And then, a few verses later, we're told that Joshua overwhelmed Amalek, that he'd won, and he was coming back. We don't get anything in the middle. There's, there's no detail here at all. There's no numbers of troops that were used. No talk of the tactics that they employed or the weaponry that was used. Even prominent figures. The only name we have is Joshua. Nobody else is referenced. And it's not that God has a blanket rule on not talking about this sort of stuff. Because in many other conflicts in the Bible, those things are referred to. And actually, God deliberately uses them to put in details in that story that might bring him glory. So why not here? Why is it seemingly so lacking? This is the first fight that the people of God are facing, and yet we basically miss the fight entirely. It's a bit like if you went to see an action film in the cinema. Maybe it's Avengers Endgame. Even saying that film's name gets that kind of reaction. People are like, if you spoil it, I will. <laughs> see? In my original notes, I was like, oh, I'll make a little spoiler joke at this point. I was just too high risk. I'm not going to say anything. Maybe it's another action film, right? You go to the cinema, you're like, I need to get my action fix. Just a couple of hours of goodies versus baddies, a good old 50 cuff fight, wonderful, that's what I'm after. So you pay your money, you go in, and first scene, the, the good guys are on their way to the battle already. You think, oh, mate, this is great, because they're not faffing around with any of the character development stuff at the beginning, we're straight in. <laughs> then second scene, changes, and they actually, sadly, do go to the character development stuff. You think, oh, fine. I know some people like this for the emotional connection, whatever. <laughs> they spend a bit of time there, then there's all these kind of subplots and political side texts, and you think, oh, all right, maybe like half an hour or so of this will set up a grander 
battle. And then an hour goes by, you think, oh, okay. And in two hours, you think, man, they are really pushing their limits here. It's going to have to be a really big finish for this thing to actually come home. And so you're ready for the big fight at the end. And then what happens, final scene comes up, and the goodies are just coming back from the fight. And you think, well, hang on a second. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> oh, we won. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. <laughs> but how did you do it? And then the credits roll, you think, wow, I've been duped. <laughs> that is not what I paid my money for at all. Basically, that's what happens here. We enter this story, this fight, we think, wow, the first battle that the people are going to face. And then we hear nothing of it other than, oh, they returned and they won. Why, why on earth is that the case? Well, who knows that sometimes God draws our attention onto something quite unexpected to teach us an important lesson. I know I've definitely seen that in my life. I'm sure you have in yours as well. Because God's about the long game. He's got a much bigger picture in play. So here, in the same way, he diverts our attention actually off of the fight very deliberately and onto the hill. And what happens on the hill might not be actually what you first have thought. Because when I... I I've, found out and looked in the, the passage that I was speaking on for today, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm roughly familiar with how it goes. I was like, oh, I, Moses goes up, yeah, and he, like, something to do with his hands, and he prays, and then the people win, and then when he doesn't, they lose, and, but eventually they win, and oh, yeah, I know it. Oh, so it's a passage on prayer. So that's what I can preach on. I even started kind of ticking over ideas in my mind. I was like, well, I should read a little bit of, of what the commentators say to get a, a greater depth of understanding. The first one I opened, the guy was like, yeah, it's not about prayer. Like, oh. And actually, having read a few more, I have come to the conclusion that that is not what this passage is about. And it's just worth saying that because so often when we come to the Bible, if you're anything like me, you'll, you'll know it a bit. You'll be a bit familiar. I think I know how all this passage goes. And then when you come to read it, you essentially read it through your own preconceived filter. That, oh, this passage is about prayer. So you just read prayer into everything that's there. But without it, actually, it doesn't reference prayer at all. There's no prayer spoken of. Now, now some have, have pointed to other points in the Old Testament where people have prayed with their hands raised, and prayer is talked about in the kind of same sentence. And so they think, well, well that's probably what's going on here. But the thing with that is, is that on almost all of those occasions, as I said, the word and the language of prayer is actually used, but not here. And also, a lot of the time, you actually then hear the prayer that was spoken. You actually get the words of whoever prayed it. And here, we have nothing of the sort. So I don't think this passage is talking about Moses praying up on the hill. I think the focus is much more on the judgment of God. Because the staff of God in Moses' hand, that is the thing that is being raised and lowered. And that staff is the very staff that was used to enact judgment upon Egypt just earlier in this story. That's the focus here. It's not that Moses is praying, but it's what he's raising is this staff of God, this staff of judgment. And so Moses is up there on the hill with this staff in his hand. And, and it says it first. It's in one hand, singular. And he's up there, and he's trying to, to hold it aloft. And, and when he does, the people of Israel prevail. But naturally, just because it's hard to have your arm elevated for any length of time, it, it gets weary, it gets tired, and, and it drops. And then the Amalekites prevail. 
And you can empathize with Moses if you're anything like me, where maybe when you've gone to pray for someone by laying on hands, maybe on a shoulder, I, and there's some nods already happening, I could barely go like 30, 40 seconds before I have to start kind of erecting some sort of support structure to allow me to go any length of time. And then you swap hands, and, and Moses is the same. Maybe he swaps hands and tries again, but still has to lower. And then in verse 12, we read that Moses' hands grew weary. Lots of the commentators agree that he probably got to the point where he was trying to use two to keep this thing up so that Israel would, Israel would prevail in the fight. But even then, couldn't do it. It was not enough. And then there's this, this beautiful moment, actually, where the two that are with him, his brother and this person, her, they, they get a stone for him to sit on. So Moses is struggling like this. They think, well, we want to help. We want to try and help him keep his arms lifted. So they get this stone. They put it under him. It's almost like he goes to be more like this. And the reason why is actually just common sense. It means that then her and Aaron don't also have to have their arms elevated. Instead, they can just stand to one side and just hold their arms down here. So they can then sustain his arms up, and he can hold up this staff of God, this staff of judgment, so that the people prevail. It's just a really lovely, beautiful moment where two friends supporting their leader, helping where they can, and ultimately the thing that brings about victory. There's all this detail about this kind of hands-raised dynamic, when and who, and who was on which side, but nothing of the fight itself. Why? Well, I believe it's because although the fight might take place down in the valley, the battle itself is won up on the hill. And the battle, importantly, belongs to God. It doesn't belong to Joshua. He's named, yes, but it's not his battle. It doesn't even belong to Moses. The battle is God's. That's why the focus is on the staff of God here his judgment and power. The victory belongs to him. And this is actually one of my biggest struggles, and I think probably something that humanity as a whole probably all struggle with, is not wanting to do it ourselves. I, I have a very perfectionist streak in me. Those that know me will be able to testify to that fact. Sometimes it's a blessing. Most of the time it's just a pain. And it it means that I actually try far too much to kind of do it all myself so that I can make that, whatever it is, that situation perfect. And if you kind of map this story onto that, it's almost like if I were Joshua down in the, the valley in the fight, I'd almost be like, yeah, God, just like give me a minute. I just need to fight this thing on my own. I just need to deal with this. Let, let me just sort this out. Just hang on a sec. Because I want to try and do it. I want to try and win. I want to try and achieve. I wonder if you've ever seen that in yourself. I think probably all of us have something of that deep down. But it's not our battle. It's God's in this story. It is God's. It's his victory to win. And this victory is, is particularly significant because it's not just about this particular fight. Although, you know, that's the story. This is the time that we're reading in. It's not just about this moment in time. Tim Chester says that this battle at Rephidim in Exodus 17 is not a small tribal conflict. 
It is a picture of the battle that has raged since the fall and rages still today. This fight that we read about here, what happens up on the hill, is a, is a prelude to the ongoing war between God and Satan. It's got a much grander scope than what we might first read. And all of a sudden, with that in view, with that mindset, this is pointing to something much higher than itself, you begin to understand and see why the focus of the story is actually not on the detail of the fight in the valley, but is focused up on the hill. Because just as this smaller conflict was won, not in the valley, but on the hill, so too the the grand battle between God and the powers of darkness was not won by angel armies fighting the enemy face to face, but was won on a hill, on another hill called Calvary, upon which another man, Jesus Christ, had his hands raised, but not by friends there in love and support, but by cold metal nails driven through his skin into the wood, pinning him to that cross. And in that moment was taking upon himself the judgment of God against a rebellious and sinful mankind. The judgment that ultimately should have come upon you and I for turning away from God, for rejecting him, Jesus took that judgment upon himself. And as he breathed his last with his dying breath, declared that it is finished, the ultimate victory was achieved in that moment on the hill. And the effects of that victory will ripple and have been rippling throughout the ages ever since until one day Jesus will return and wrap the whole thing up. So when you're fighting the fight, when you feel like you're down in the valley, we are encouraged, urged even by this story to divert our attention from that which is in front of us to that which has gone before on a hill, what Jesus did for us. Now, it doesn't mean that that's going to be easy. I'm not pretending that it is. I don't know what situations you're facing in your life at the moment. Maybe it's something like, I don't know, the, the sickness of a, a loved one out of nowhere. Worse, even an unexpected death. The, the things that not only just stop you in your tracks, but you feel like you're being fought back. You feel the dynamic come against you. Maybe it's you just started out in, in work, but redundancy hits. And it is not just then that Oh, well, work, work is hard, but at least I'm, I'm steady in, in it. But no, you feel like you're being battled and beaten back, that ground is being lost. Maybe it's just struggles with mental health, that they don't just make your days trickier, but you feel like your days are being stolen from you. Those things where you're not just stopped, but beaten back. In those moments, as hard as it might seem, we're urged from this story to turn our gaze away from those things. Not entirely, we take them seriously, but remember 
that which has come before, what's been done on the hill already. In John 16, Jesus himself said that, he said these things that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. He knew it was going to come. He knew we would face hardship, but he said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. And truly, truly he has. And he did it on the hill. So the battle belongs to God. It is his. The victory is his. And it is won up on the hill, not down in the fight. But how, then, do we look up from the fight that we face? Like, practically, what does that look like in my day-to-day life? Well, that's where I want to move on to the two things that Moses does at the end, or he's told to do. Verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. He tells Moses to write this stuff down, like the account of what's happened. He said, I want you to write this down and recite it to Joshua so that he will remember what God did here, so that he can recite it to those to come after him, so that the people can remember and recall, oh, it wasn't about the fight that happened in the valley, it's what happened up on the hill, that it was God's victory to win. He says, write it down in a book. This is the memorial I want you to give to the people. And you know what? We have written down for us an incredible book called the Bible, the Word of God given to us as our own memorial, not just of one battle, but of so many, so many victories and triumphs that you can read about in this book. And ultimately, that one victory that changed everything forever in this book, the Word of God. Later in the Bible, Paul describes this dynamic that the, the fight we face, the, the war that we wage, is, is not with flesh and blood. That is to say, it's not really with the things of this age that we can kind of see and touch, but it's with spiritual forces, things that are unseen. You think, wow, goodness me, how am I supposed to fight what I can't see? Well, then he encourages us to put on the armor of God, these spiritual things that we can use in the fight. And he ends that passage by talking about the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. This is our sword, our weapon in the fight. This is what we are to wield in those moments where we feel like we're being beaten back. This is what we are to use. This is our memorial left, that we can recite these things to ourselves, to our friends. And sometimes, yes, we go through life and and God just speaks in his good timing as we're going through scriptures, as people teach on Sundays, and it's wonderful. But sometimes I fear that we can over-spiritualize that. When we're facing something hard, we just think, well, I'm just going to wait until God reveals something to me. You know what? I think he's already revealed something to us. Hasn't he? It's just, it's all here. So practically, what does that look like? Well, maybe it's you just make a, a list on your phone. Verses that have already built you up. Verses that strengthen you. So that in that moment where you feel that moment of being beaten back, you have something to go to. You have a sword to wield. I remember this verse helped me before. And you preach it to yourself. Maybe for you it's memorizing scripture. 
That might not come easily, but remembering what the word says. So even when you have nothing on you, you can speak to the enemy and wield your weapon in the fight. You know what? Sometimes it can be just as simple as having a quick Google search. Bible verses on the victory of Jesus. There will be a plenty. <laughs> so many articles with long lists of verses referring to the victory that Christ has won for us. Find them. Learn them. Read the passages around them. Allow them to build you up, to strengthen you so that you can stand firm and not be pushed back in those moments of hardship. This is the memorial, a book written down that we can recite and be strengthened in these things. It doesn't mean the fight will change. That situation might not be any different, but you'll be stronger to face it. You'll be better equipped to face it as it comes. And then finally, with the victory secured, Moses builds an altar. Verse 15, it says, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. This is one of many altars built in the Old Testament. So, so many. Some of which even Moses built. They're physical things, like man-made structures, put together to serve as reminders to the people of what God did there at that location. So that when they see it, when they go past it, oh, yeah, I remember. That's what God did here. He beat the Amalekites. That's what happens. These specific locations designed to remind them of God's victory. But we don't build altars anymore. If you searched Grace Church, you would not find one. There are none in here. That's because we don't need to build altars anymore. One of the commentators I read, Peter Enns, a superb commentary on Exodus, actually, he said... God has left his final mark in the empty tomb and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in and among his people. See, from now on, we don't need to visit altars and, and specific locations and find those man-made structures to remind us. We need only look to one thing, the empty tomb. The stone rolled away. And, and, and remember that moment, three days after the victory was won at the cross, cold and dead in the tomb, there was, there was a single moment in time in history where Jesus breathed again, resurrected from the dead into eternal life, never to die again. And in that moment, ushering in a new age for every single one of us that would put our trust in him. It was the ultimate vindication of the victory that had come three days earlier. It was the proclamation of the very fact that sin, death, and all the powers associated with them had been conquered by Jesus. We just need to remember the empty tomb. That now becomes and serves us as our altar. Rosie, why don't you and the band come up just as I wrap up? That's where we're to look. So in this, the first battle that the people of Israel faced, they learned an important lesson. And we must learn the same. That it, it wasn't won by Joshua. It wasn't won even by the great Moses. The battle was won by God. The victory belonged to him. On the hill, 
as a sign of the victory that was to come, that now we know of, on another hill. It's not our fight to win. And as we live our lives and head into our weeks and the months to come, and we face these fights, these things that are so, so hard, that Jesus knew full well we would face in good time. We have a memorial in the Word of God to recite truths, testimonies, and accounts of the victory that God has achieved to strengthen us so that we can stand firm when the enemy comes. We have an altar to remember what God did there, the empty tomb, the stone rolled away, that we look to and say, oh yeah, I remember God defeated the powers of darkness for me so that I didn't have to. Despite the setbacks, and even in the face of hardship, as hard as it gets, we don't just stand confident because of everything this story points to and everything that God has achieved. We stand as more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen? Amen. Rosie and the band are going to lead us in a song, and then uh, we'll see where we go from there.